was telling Brother Kevin, I'm thankful to have kids that do have a, a desire to sing and to serve with some talent that God's given them. And uh, they've been given a lot more musical talent than I have, so we're just trying to push them to use it. And so Annabelle was actually a little bit jealous. She wanted to get up and sing with her mom today. So <laughs> I appreciate them willing and wanting to sing. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 2. If you're already there, we'll stay in Luke chapter 2. Of course, this is a familiar chapter in Scripture. And uh, Bud, can you go get me uh, another bottle of water, please? <clears throat> Drink all this one before singing. <clears throat> familiar passage here, Luke chapter 2, as we think about the, God, uh, the Christmas story. And uh, Lord willing, we're going to look at it just a little bit differently this morning. Um, we'll cover the whole Christmas story, but um, how many of you consider yourself a history buff? Like history. Yeah, everybody points to Brother Kevin. Yeah, Brother Kevin loves history, and uh, I believe you taught it as well. Didn't you teach for a little bit? Uh, one of my favorite subjects in high school, probably, probably my favorite subject I ever took in all of school uh, uh, through college and everything, was a, a, a course called History of Western Civilization. And I took it with our school administrator's name was uh, Mr. Krause, John Krause. And uh, he was a pretty tough teacher. He, everybody, from the time I was in seventh grade up until I got to my senior year, everybody that would take it would say, if you want an A in that class, it's going to be hard. Almost nobody comes out of that class with an A. And so, you know, you're prepped for this as you go into it. But Mr. Krause's style was very much... Um, he liked to study the context of history, not just the moments of history, but what, what was going on throughout history. What was the context of movements and moments? And we read a book called, by Francis Schaeffer called um, How, the, How Should I Then Live? If anybody's ever read that book. Thanks, bud. And uh, again, just kind of an interesting book to look at the perspective of movements across Eastern to Western civilization and how societies were molded by movements of art and entertainment and philosophy, and, and things like that. Not just people all the time, but just these movements of things. But one thing we had to do in that class is we had to write these papers. I think we wrote three of them we, at different times. We'd have to write it with different content each time, but it was called the Hand of God paper. And the Hand of God paper was looking at history and even looking at the Bible and saying, where was God hand, God's hand working in those moments of history? And so you had to think what would God's purpose be in allowing this to happen? Or how does it tie into, say, Old Testament prophecies or uh, what God was doing in the, in the Bible through Israel and how it relates to these moments? And so uh, I remember doing that class and just really, really starting to learn to, to look at things a little bit bigger than maybe just the moment of something that happened. Yeah, Christopher Columbus came to America. Okay, cool. That's a fun historical fact to know. But what was all the stuff that was going on prior to that happening? And he really taught us to do that, and it gave me a love for history uh, and really wanting to learn history. Now, as I've gotten older, I've begun to reflect a lot more. I've got more years to reflect on. And I begin to just start asking, God, what has your hand been like in my life? I don't, not just the moments of, okay, this I accomplished, and this is when I got a job, and this is when I got married, and this, but what were you doing in the midst of my life, in the life of the people? So I begin to just ask questions of people, or I begin to talk to people a little bit differently. Hey, what was going on in your life around that time? And just understanding how God's hand works, and it's amazing to see how many times um, unlikely 
things took place or things that you would not have expected to take place that actually shaped a lot of your life. It wasn't always the big things and all the things that you would say, oh, that's what made me who I am. It's most often all the little unlikely stories and moments in your life. And really, history is made up of that. I found this article. I thought this was pretty interesting. You can fact check it later. Or maybe Brother Kevin will tell me you're wrong on all those things. I don't know. Um, But I looked up what are some unlikely events that happened in history that actually shaped history. And I found 10 of them. I'm not going to read all of these. But let me read a few of these for you just to get you thinking a little bit. When Adolf Hitler was only six years old, he experienced vicious nightmares that his doctor recommended his parents send him to a mental health facility. However, the parents declined the suggestion, worrying that authorities would discover the abuse his father had inflicted upon him. Had he received psychological help at this young age or the abuse had been found out, would that have created a different outcome for Adolf Hitler? Right? Again, just an interesting thought. We, we know, and I'll just say this as a caveat, we know that God ultimately knows the events of history that are going to be, okay? And God will shape them and use the people who he wants to do that. But I'm saying, humanly speaking, when we don't have God's wisdom to see every detail of every event, it is interesting to think about the little things that have happened. Here's another one. In 1947, Fidel Castro came to the United States. Does anybody know why he came to the United States? to try out for a professional baseball team, the Washington Senators. The team decided he was not cut out to be a professional baseball player, so he turned to a career of politics instead. And we know how that turned out. I mean, imagine if that GM would have just said, okay, we'll take you. Here, let me give you a couple. Prior to Archduke Franz Ferdinand's assassination, one of his officers was injured in in another assassination attempt. The Archduke decided to visit this officer in the hospital, but on the way there, his car took a wrong turn and gave the assassin the opportunity to kill the Archduke and his wife. Again, just thinking about moments that shaped history. We know that that assassination took place, but do we oftentimes know what was working and what was moving in and out of different moments of that time? Unfortunately for the crew and passengers aboard the Titanic, one of the crew masters was replaced at the last minute before the ship began its voyage, and he forgot to hand over the key to the locker, which held the binoculars to the new crewmaster. Had the crew had access to binoculars, it is possible they would have seen the iceberg in time to steer clear of it. Interesting thought, right? A small, unlikely situation that happened, and yet look at what happened in history. This is an interesting one. During World War II, the British ambassador to Turkey's butler, so this ambassador's butler was spying on the Allies because Turkey was considering entering the war on the side of the Axis powers. Being the butler, he had unfettered access to the ambassador's files, and he was able to uncover and copy top-secret information, including the plans for D-Day. However, when he turned the information over to the Germans, they thought him to be an unreliable spy. As a result, they disregarded the information intelligence that could have changed the outcome of the war. And they forsook it and said, no, that's not reliable. And then D-Day happened. Marco Polo was imprisoned in a a Genoan jail after the Venetian ship he was fighting on was captured during a trading war in in 1298. His cellmate convinced him to document his travels and experiences in Asia. 
which the cellmate later published. The advice of the loquacious cellmate led to a wellspring of knowledge for Europe in the high Middle Ages. Again, just moments in history, you start to think about what really shaped events that happened. And again, we could spend time looking at a history book and just say, we know this event happened, this moment happened, this. But it's amazing to think that God, all the while that moment in time was happening, hundreds, if not thousands, and millions of decisions and moments were impacting that very moment in time. You know, we live so linear on what we look at, and God looks everywhere. I had an opportunity a couple weeks ago. We had the 50th anniversary of Tri-City Christian Academy. That's where our kids go. Uh, It's their gold anniversary. And I had an opportunity, and I think I've shared this with a few, but I had an opportunity to share a testimony at that um, service and get up and speak about the impact that Tri-City had in our life. And uh, I just began to, as I was thinking about, wow, what did Tri-City do for me? I could think about, oh, I got to play sports. And well, they encouraged me to go to Bible college, so that was good. A public school probably wouldn't have done that, or uh, I had good friends, or best of all, in sixth grade, I met my wife, right? So I think, oh, those are all really good memories. But as I began to talk to my father-in-law, again, I just thought, boy, isn't God amazing? My father-in-law was a graduate in the third graduating class of Tri-City. So actually, my father-in-law graduated My wife graduated, and Adam next year, Lord willing, will be the first third-generation graduate at Tri-City Christian Academy. But I talked to my father-in-law. I said, so I knew he was born in Pennsylvania. I said, Dad, how did you get out to Arizona? He said, well, actually, my my parents lived in Denver, Colorado. And we were living in Denver, Colorado, and just kind of out of the blue, they said, let's go down to Arizona and see what's going on. I mean, there was nothing in their mind. There was no job. There was no church. There was nothing that they were aware of in, 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 Chandler, or in, in Phoenix, Arizona. But they drove down. And they happened to be staying at a hotel that was up off of Apache and Price. They went into a convenience store. And they get a receipt. And on the bottom of that receipt says, we welcome you to come attend Tri-City Baptist Church. They're like, well, we don't have a church yet. Tri-City Baptist Church was only a mile and a half from where they were staying up there off of Price and Southern at the time. They show up and they find out, we just started a Christian school two years ago. And we're starting our first high school next year. And guess who got to be in that, when that high school started? My father-in-law was in the first class of high school as a 10th grader, graduated three years later. Off of a receipt. And it just begins to blow my mind how God intertwines the events of life and the events of unlikely moments to bring about history and moments in time. The most unlikeliest of events in all of history is yet the greatest shaper of history, and that's the birth of Jesus Christ. The birth of Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to just study seven unlikely moments and characters that make up the story of Christ's birth. People that you would have never said, that's who's going to be a part of that. Moments you would have not expected it to happen. Places that should never have been. But yet God worked all these things out. Unlikely people and moments in time to bring about the greatest gift and the greatest shaping of history, and that is the advent and the birth of Jesus Christ. Let's look at a few of these here for us this morning. And again, this is probably not something you haven't heard before, 
the Christmas story is not uh, uncommon to all of us in this room. But again, I just want us to start thinking about these different people are getting moved at the same time. It's not happening isolated. God is moving all of these things to come to one moment. And one thing which ultimately is a fulfillment of His Word. Amen? And uh, we won't take the time to go through all the prophecy this morning. We'll reference some of it. But we're just really going to focus here in Luke chapter 2. The first thing, the unlikely moment in time. The unlikely moment in time. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 here. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. Now, maybe some of you history buffs could say, tell me who Caesar Augustus is. But Caesar Augustus was the first Roman emperor, official Roman emperor. Now, there were leaders within Rome prior to Caesar Augustus. In fact, his adoptive father, his name was Caesar and Julius Caesar. And he actually took the name of his adoptive father. He was adopted. He was, uh, uh, his parents had been killed. He was adopted and ended up ascending to the throne and actually took out a couple people that were vying for the, the kingdom. But Caesar Augustus was the first official Roman emperor, and he reigned for 45 years. He goes by the name, uh, his birth name was Gaius Octavius. As the grandnephew and adopted son of Julius Caesar, he took the name Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus, or Octavian. He used the popularity of his great uncle's name to rally the army behind him. And again, I could read a lot of historical things. He's 18 years old. He's studying in Greece. And his, his adoptive father, Julius Caesar, was assassinated. So as his heir, Octavian entered into a power struggle for the throne. And again, he defeated Cassius and Brutus, who were the primary conspirators against Caesar. And then there were some other things that people forced into retirement. Eventually, he gained full control of the Roman Empire at the Battle of Actium in 31 B.C., defeating Mark Antony and Cleopatra, who both committed suicide. Again, I'm just telling you a bunch of historical facts, right? That victory brought Egypt into the Roman provinces and founded the Roman Empire with Augustus as the sole ruler. Uh, The Roman Senate honored him with the title Augustus, which means uh, reverend, the exalted, the venerable. Historians say that at the time that Augustus was ruling, after he gained authority, there were a few little battles, but overall they say that at the time in the world, it was a very peaceful time in the world. He reigned in a a very uh, peaceful time, very little wars. They say he ruled with somewhat of uh, a heavy hand, but ultimately he allowed Israel to maintain somewhat of its independence. They ruled over Israel, but they kind of held off, and they let the Sanhedrin, which we would all know who they are, these uh, spiritual leaders and rulers of Israel, he let them actually uh, keep their traditions, keep their laws, keep their customs. They were able to live how they wanted to live, worship how they wanted to worship, uh, 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 create all the traditions and customs and feasts. They could do all the things that, that the book of, uh, of the law required of them to do. He didn't, he didn't stop any of it. So you'd ask yourself, in a time of peace, when Israel can do whatever they want, why do they need a Savior? Don't you think that a Savior, in our mind, if we were to write this story, 
I'm not an advocate for everything Avenger, okay? There's like an Avenger craze out there, and it's a little bit nuts. And so, um, you know, I caution you maybe a little bit to get caught up into too much of that, especially now they're getting into really uh, sinful and progressive philosophies and some of their stuff. Um, but anyways, if you were to write an Avenger story, the hero is never called a hero when everything's at peace. You never see a hero enter the scene and come on to the moment and say, I'm here to save the day and there's nothing to save. Okay. Right? Look at the heroes of the Bible. They're a hero in the Bible because they came out and had to fight something, to beat something, to accomplish something. Jesus Christ is coming at a moment in time when the world is not looking for a Savior. They're not looking for the Messiah. Why would they need to? Wouldn't it have made more sense for Jesus to come when they were in captivity? Wouldn't it have made more sense for Jesus to wait maybe 50 more years when Nero becomes the emperor and hates Israel and burns up Israel and persecutes Israel? Wouldn't that be a time for Jesus to then be born of a virgin and come and save his people? That's not the time he chose. He chose an unlikely moment in time, a time when there was peace, a time when nobody would have been looking for a Savior to come. But that's when he chose. Number two here, the unlikely mother in Mary. Can anybody name one thing right now that would make Mary stand out to be the mother of the Savior of the world? In our minds, what would we want to stand out? Reputation, wealth, resources, education, I don't know, political standing, whatever you want to say, right? Because that's what we would look for, would we not? If I were to write this story, I would say, let's, let's frame the mother of the Savior of the world to be like the most perfect woman that ever existed and had all the qualities that we'd want in a woman to be had a certain look and had a certain demeanor and had a certain... Look, the Bible actually doesn't tell us a whole lot about Mary as a person. We know nothing of the, from the time she was born until the time that the angel comes to her and delivers the news that she is going to conceive this child and give birth to the, the Savior of the world. Look here in verses 5 through 7. Joseph, in verse 4, is going up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea and verse 5 says to be taxed with Mary, his espoused, which means engaged. So they're not even married. His espoused wife being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The unlikely mother of Mary here. Now again, we know some of our... Uh, <clears throat> Friends and acquaintances and other religions put Mary way too high on a pedestal, way too high in this order of worship, in this order of, of reverence. She doesn't deserve to be revered like God. She doesn't deserve to be revered as uh, someone equal to God or someone that is uh, uh, similar to God. She wasn't. She was a very plain woman. And we could easily conclude that um, she didn't meet any of those requirements that we would look for. We know she wasn't wealthy. If she was wealthy, she wouldn't have had to be wandering around looking for a place to stay. 
If she was well-connected, I think she probably would have been able to find someone that she could stay with and have this baby. She had no resources. She was not well-known. She was just a young, some even say maybe in the high teens of age, if not probably in the low 20s. She was a virgin. She had never uh, been married, never been with a man. She was uh, young and had nothing. Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38, you can study the lineage of, 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 of Jesus through the line of Mary. Matthew chapter 1 does the line of, of, of Joseph. From Adam to Joseph, in Luke 23, you have the lineage from the second Adam all the way down to the first Adam, which is the lineage of Mary, if you actually track it. And the only qualification that Mary possesses is that she is of the tribe of what? Yeah, of Judah, of the house of who? David. That's the only thing that she qualifies for. She doesn't qualify to be a mother for any other reason. But she's of the tribe of Judah. And so God chose an unlikely person at an unlikely moment to say, hey, you're going to give birth. Again, if we were to select the mother of the Savior of the world, we'd be concerned about genetic stock, monetary resources, security for the future. Do you have a plan for that child when they're born? A name, a reputation of clout, prestige, but not God. You don't even start thinking about if you if you read back in Luke chapter one, there's a relative of Mary named Elizabeth. You know Elizabeth was married to a priest. Hmm, That seems like that would be a pretty decent qualification, right? I mean, she's probably got some reputation because of her husband in Israel. She's probably got some. Uh, sway and, and conversation and maybe in uh, the, the political circles and maybe in the religious circles. Elizabeth is probably well known. And in fact, she is granted a child in her late stricken years. But who's the child? John. Boy, wouldn't Elizabeth have made a better candidate to, to bear the child, the savior of the world? Not in God's eyes. Again, the more I think about how God aligns Scripture and God brings about things, I'm reminded of what 1 Corinthians 1 says, where God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Oh, we think we're so smart. We could figure all this stuff out. And God says, you have no idea. I'm moving pieces all the time. I'm taking unlikely people and unlikely moments, and I'm going to converge those into a moment in history and in time that people will remember, and they may not ever even know about all the little details that happened. One day we're going to get to heaven, and I believe we're going to have a much pure mind to be able to see how God truly intertwined His hand into all of history. That I'll be able to see moments in my life that maybe had an impact on Brother Music that he'll never know about. And maybe the same for him and mine, and the same for Brother Matt and to my kid's life or whatever. There's moments that we'll never know that God allowed to happen for a reason in your life to bring you to a place, to bring a moment about. And oftentimes those are the things that we forsake. We look at the one big picture, and at Christmas we focus so much on Jesus Christ, which we ought to. But it is amazing how God used unlikely things and brought about such a, a, the most important moment in history. An unlikely mother. Number three here, the unlikely method. Uh, this wasn't a normal birth. Uh, this wasn't a normal conception. 
If you look in Matthew or in Luke chapter 1, just probably a page over, verse number 26, it says, And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, a spouse to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. In verse number 34, she says, Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? How can this happen? This is not common. This is not the likely way for it to happen, for a baby to be born. And God chose an unlikely method of virgin birth. It's never before happened and will never happen again. God didn't need to have the tainting of man's seed to birth his son. God used a pure womb. It had not been tainted. It had not been uh, 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 with anybody. A virgin birth to bring forth his perfect holy son. Joseph did everything right by his fiancée, protected her, knowing that the world would tell a different story had they found out about her pregnancy. Think about the tabloids today. We'd find, unfortunately, today we'd find no problem with a child born out of wedlock. Unfortunately, we'd have no problem saying, hey, it's fine if you're going to have a baby and you're not married. No big deal. Back then, that wasn't the case. Back then, that would have been a problem. Today, we would romanticize this whole thing, wouldn't we? Let's talk about the relationship of Mary and Joseph. Oh, it's so amazing and intimate. And we, it, and we would make this some romantic uh, fantasy and we'd build this thing all up. God didn't need all of that. <laughs> God just said, hey, I'm choosing an unlikely woman that's a virgin, you're pure, and I'm going to use your womb and you're going to be conceived of the Holy Spirit and you're going to give birth to the Son and the Savior of the world. I don't need man. I don't need man's seed. I don't need uh, uh, the normal biological processes. I can do this through another means. I would have never thought of that. An unlikely method. Isaiah 7 prophesied that there would be a, birth, a virgin birth. And so God made it happen. God brought it to be. Number four, another unlikely uh, situation. You look at verse number seven again. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The unlikely manner where he was born. I say manner, M-A-N-O-R, is like home, place of dwelling. Again, I'm trying to stick with my M's here. And so the unlikely manner where he was born. Was he born in some ritzy, beautiful hospital? Was he born in some beautiful home where everything was put together and, and well prepared and ready for this delivery and ready for any situation and ready with all this nice warm and, and, uh, and things to, to, to welcome the baby into the world? No, he wasn't. All five of our children were born at hospitals. We didn't have any home births, even though we probably would have, that, that probably would have been our plan had the Lord allowed that, that um, 
for many different reasons, our, our kids were all different, are born at hospitals. And they were all born at five different hospitals. So we have visited quite a bit of hospitals here uh, in the valley. Adam was born at, at the time, it was, um, I'm pretty sure it was, um, I think it was a Methodist church up there off of Brown, if I remember correctly. I can't remember the name of it. I think it's, it's all changed now and stuff. But anyways, he was born up off, off of Brown and Country Club or somewhere up there. And uh, I remember when Sony was a week late. And so the, the, the hospital said, listen, if you get to a week, we're going to schedule you to come in. You'll have to be induced. And so I remember um, them kind of walking us through that. And then they came to us and they said, now, listen, you're going to come in. I think it was a Wednesday. No, it was a Thursday night. They said, you're going to come in uh, Friday morning at 3 a.m., we're going to get her started on, I always forget what the stuff's called, but anyways, we're going to induce, and then uh, it's going to take its time, so why don't you bring in some movies and some extra pillows and some extra blankets and, 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 and just take it easy. So Sony and I grabbed a couple movies we liked, and we went in at 3 o'clock in the morning, and we sat down, and she laid down on the bed. I, I probably scooted over and laid down with her, because I usually did that, and they put in the drip or whatever, and, they started getting, and we just sat there and watched a movie. It's pretty nice. It's pretty painless here. All of a sudden, like 11 o'clock in the morning, she starts going into labor, has the baby 45 minutes later. Hey, cool. That was a pretty piece of cake. Right? They bring Adam to us. He's got a little beanie thing on his head. He's all wrapped. We're like, dude, I'm a dad. Take him back. I don't know what to do with him. Right? Christopher, a couple, about 18 months later, was born. It was at the time that Sonia had her first seizure, and we began to learn that she had a brain tumor. And uh, Christopher was born up at Desert Banner. And the normal procedure is that when you're, when you're, the baby is usually only left in the kind of baby wing for maybe two, maybe three days if needed. If the mom had like an extra procedure or maybe even like a C-section or something, they would let the baby stay in the nursery. But really, they needed Sony to stay almost another week in the hospital. She was doing all sorts of tests and they were doing all sorts of analysis to see what this tumor was about. So they actually allowed her to move to this separate spot and they kept him in the nursery. And the nurses actually cared for him for about four more days past what normally they would care for him. And they would bring him in to her, and if she was getting tired or something or, um, or whatever, they would, they would take him back and they would care for him even longer than what they were supposed to. It was pretty comfortable. Man, I'd go up there and I'm like, he's in the nursery? She's like, yeah, and then right next door, they let us go in there for snacks. I go in there, I'm getting cranberry juice. I'm getting graham crackers, I'm getting food. I go in, I'm like, scoot over, man. Like, give me some room, turn on the TV, let's watch some. You know, it was really nice and comfortable. I could say the same for really all of my kids. Annabelle was born two weeks early. She needed to stay in the hospital for a week while her lungs finished developing. And, man, it was comfortable to go in and visit her. And where they had her set up was beautiful and, and warm and cozy. And people were giving her attention and caring for her and taking care of her. Caleb was born with a heart issue had to be transported 45 minutes after he's born to Phoenix Children's Hospital to have open-heart surgery a few days later. They cared for him like crazy, just this huge orchestration of doctors and, and, and things that were going on. Really, Anna, Addison probably feels left out. She's the one with the least amount of drama. <clears throat> she was born at Mercy Gilbert, and it took, you know, Sonia's sitting in the, the house bouncing on an exercise ball. Okay, I think I'm ready. All right, let's go. And she gave birth like two hours later, and then... We were dismissed like the next day. I'm like, man, that was uneventful. <laughs> Not used to this. Really, what I'm just getting to is the fact that each of my kids were born in a, in a, a large amount of comfort. You know, they, they had it easy. 
Uh, I know not every birth, even in the U.S., is like that. I know not every birth is, is perfect, but we live in a very comfortable society. Jesus was born in one of the most unlikeliest of places to be born. I don't have records to show how many people were born in stalls. Uh, we really don't know if it was a barn, a stable. I could actually show you what some people believe this whole, uh, maybe you've heard of this, called, um, this thing called the Tower of the Flock or something like that. It's mentioned in Genesis. It's actually near uh, uh, Bethlehem. They say it actually it might be the place where he gave, they gave birth. It was a place that was known for bringing new lambs into the world. They would give birth in there, and then they would clean them on mangers and stalls right there in this, this, this tower. And then the main shepherd would watch out over the rest of the sheep while they were delivering these lambs down there. Anyways, whether it was there or in a stable or a barn or whatever, I'm pretty sure most people weren't born in those. The most uncomfortable of places. Imagine being a mother having to give birth there. He was born in the simplest of locations and places. Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? I mean, there was nothing special about Bethlehem. There was nothing fancy about it. It wasn't the hub of all society where everybody was you know, aware of, hey, this, this, this birth is happening and there's amazing, thriving times. No, no, Bethlehem was a pretty meek, mild place to be born. <coughs> Swaddling clothes, nothing flattering, a manger. Some say it was like a horse trough or maybe it was just a wooden stone a bed where they would lay these animals on to clean them or to feed them, whatever it was. Again, it wasn't a fancy crib. He wasn't given a fancy beanie as he was born. He wasn't given nice little lighting to help warm his skin and to, to bring up his temperature. And they weren't taking suction cups and sucking stuff out of his nose and out of his throat and, and making him comfortable. It was uncomfortable. And yet that's who Jesus was, right? Humble. Gave up all the things of comfort to, to be uncomfortable. Born of the most humbling and simplest of conditions. The unlikely manner where he was born. Let's look at this. The unlikely ministers in the angels. Anybody like to read up on Area 51, Roswell, New Mexico? X-Files, E.T.? E.T., that's from when I was a kid. When I was a kid, not an adult, when I was a kid. I don't want to age myself too much. E.T., phone home, right? You know, our modern society has quite an obsession with heavenly creatures, and yet they refuse to accept, the majority of people refuse to accept the existence of heaven. There's heavenly creatures, but there's no heaven, Right? Even just recently, maybe some of you are aware, but the U.S. government released and unclassified these documents, these documents that were supposed to tell the story of all of our sightings and, and a large amount of our uh, understanding of extraterrestrial beings and these sightings of potential uh, un unidentified flying objects. And, and so they've got these pictures. And so thousands and thousands of people, oh, I can't wait for that to come out. I'm going to scour that report. I'm going to, oh, that's who I saw in my backyard. Oh, I know that person was there in my room, sucking something out of my brain or something. Probably just took your brain. I don't know, right? We're so obsessed with the existence of alien life, and yet 
In this story, the unlikely ministers that came to proclaim the birth of Jesus Christ was just that. Heavenly creatures. Heavenly creations that God had sent. Here in Luke chapter 2, verses 9, And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. Oh, at verse 8, And there were in the uh, country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. Anybody think you'd be sore afraid if you saw not just one angel, but pretty soon you're going to see a whole host of angels? I think I'd be pretty scared. I'll be honest. If I saw a UFO, I think I'd be scared. I mean, I would doubt what it is, but I'd still be scared. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior which is Christ the Lord, and this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. These angels come down to minister. These angels come down to tell these shepherds, Hey, a child is born. Go find him. This sign that shall be unto you. The shepherds most likely... just because they were mostly uneducated uh, type people, they were kind of like the low end of, of society, it doesn't mean that they weren't aware of uh, Jewish tradition or Jewish teachings that uh, there would be a Messiah at some point. And these angels are coming and ministering, saying, hey, and they're praising and singing God, to God about this birth. I don't want to lower the quality of what we think of angels, so I'm not trying to say they're like aliens, uh, but really these heavenly creatures, they came and they encouraged and they brought news to these shepherds, an unlikely source. The, the shepherds weren't expecting that. Again, if I were to write that, I don't think I would have thought of angels to come do that. God used something unlikely to minister to the angels or to the shepherds, these angels. And then really, in that same note, number six, the unlikely messengers that shared his birth. Then what do these shepherds do? Well, they don't just like say, oh, thanks for the information and stay there, right? The Bible says in verse 15, And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. They came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, They made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child, and all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. The shepherds then became the messengers. You know, if it was today, and I'm not, again, I'm not knocking that people do this, but, um, you know, when someone gives birth today, what's the first thing that people do? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, maybe in a YouTube video. I don't know. I mean, you know, people, we broadcast very quickly. We want to get out the news. We want to tell everybody. And those right now are the biggest messengers of our time is social media. Yay. You know, text. I love it. You know, when when, when, uh, the Cessalini's had had the the baby, they're sending out a a group text. Oh, the baby's born. Fantastic. And then my wife's like, can't we have another one? No, we can't. Delete the text. Don't go back to it. Go back to it. Stop bringing the baby to church, please. No, just, just kidding. Just kidding. But hey, what, what do you want to do? You want to announce it. Do you know that 
there wasn't anybody that was waiting there expecting Mary to have this baby that was ready to announce it for her. There wasn't some big social group that, uh, and, and, and journalists and reporters waiting at the door of this inn or at the door of this stable saying, hey, once you have that baby, tell us and we'll proclaim it for you. There was nobody to spread the message for Mary. There was nobody. Think about the moment it is for a mother to have a baby and to hold that baby and want to share the news. And yet there was nobody there fawning over Mary in this birth. There was nobody there that was willing to proclaim what was going on until these shepherds come, these nasty, smelling, dirty guys come running there. Who knows how far they came? They probably walked in and it's kind of like, now let's just be honest. Some of you, you know, ladies, when you had people come visit you at the hospital after you gave birth, let's just be honest. Sometimes you were like, I really don't want to see you right now. Can I just hold my baby? Thanks for coming, but I just want to be with my baby. Maybe that was just me because... You took up my time. Like, I don't know. But, you know, maybe, maybe she didn't want these kind of smelly guys to come in, but these guys came in and they were excited about this birth and they were worshiping with them and they were, they were proclaiming what was going on and Mary's like, whoa, this is great. And then they go out and they tell everybody abroad. Again, I don't know how many of these shepherds there were, but they're scattering throughout the town there. And they're going abroad and they're saying, hey, there's a baby that is born, there's a baby that is born, and people are beginning to wonder. Oh, what's going on? These unlikely messengers. No major fanfare, but yet he, these, these, these shepherds came and proclaimed the birth. Unlikely people, unlikely circumstances, unlikely time. And yet this is when God chose for everything to come together. And then lastly here, number seven, the unlikely mission that he came for. The unlikely mission that he came for. If you go uh, to verses 25 to 32, after Jesus was born, after eight days, they went to go have him purified or circumcised as it was the tradition for these Jewish babies. And uh, verse 25 says, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation. This is one guy that's been watching. This is one guy that's been waiting for the Messiah to come. And the Holy Ghost was upon him, and it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. According to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Here Simeon knew why Jesus had come. A salvation, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Jesus said of himself, I am come to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 5.32, he says, I have come to call sinners to repentance. Most of us would never think of our child being born for the sake of dying. I don't think any of us at the moment that we looked at the face of our child, a, a newborn child, we said, your purpose is you're going to die. And in fact, that's a heartbreaking thought to think about your child. And yet Mary is really being presented with, here's the purpose for your son, that he is going to die for the sins of the world. Mary is the only person that was present at both Jesus' birth and Jesus' death. 
an unlikely mission that he came for. He came for you and for me. And really, this convergence of this birth, again, not only shaped history, but it shapes all eternity. Does it not? So here's just a quick question. What does this mean for us? I'll just read a couple things I wrote here. I think the Christmas story is a wonderful reminder that God uses the most unlikely of circumstances, people, and resources to bring about His plans. When we look at our lives, we oftentimes look at just the major outcomes and wonder, how could that be? Yet God sees every element and detail that brought us to the moment, and He intertwined them all at the right times to bring about His end. And sometimes I think we need to spend a little bit of time praising God for all those unlikely moments, those un Uh, expected moments in our life instead of just the main things. I tried to think of this story not so isolated by each event, but in the perspective of just time. At the time that Mary and Joseph are searching for a place to stop, the shepherds are waking up from their afternoon rest and getting ready to go in the fields. Perhaps they're they're tired. Perhaps they're saying, do I really want to go out in the fields tonight? We haven't had any scary things happen. The sheep have been fine. Can't we just hang out here and not go out to the fields tonight? At the same time, the innkeeper is checking in the last guest for the evening. He's putting up his no vacancy sign. He just checked out his last room. Mary and Joseph are wandering through the town looking for a place to deliver. And the last possible room is getting booked as as they're walking through. And the shepherds are now going out to the fields. And all these things are happening at the exact same time. And on it goes that while each person is living within their own moment, God is moving those moments to converge into the fulfillment of His plan. In reality, all of us are living in moments right now that God will use in some way, whether for our history or for each other's histories, to shape moments that are yet to come. We ought to not take for granted these moments that we have. We ought to not take for granted these unlikely circumstances. I I hate to say, hey, we should praise God that pastor has COVID. We we shouldn't. But you know what? God did that for a reason. And God is going to use that to somehow shape something in your life or in my life because of that. And all these moments are God's working and God's moments to bring about what he desires for us to do. The Christmas story for, this, for me this year is a reminder that just as God used unlikely people and places to bring about Christ's birth, so He is also working in my life. Not as I would expect with big, bold, Hollywood-style flair and circumstance, but in the little, simple, unexpected moments to shape the plan He has for me. Some will stand out like the angels, right? So there'll be some pretty loud proclamations in your life, some pretty loud moments. Some will seem phenomenal, but even if it doesn't, God is still working. Maybe this year we take a moment to recognize how God's hand has worked simply and masterfully in our lives to bring us to where we are. And if that place is not where God would desire us to be, walk by faith and allow His hand to guide us to our own Bethlehem stall. God is guiding all of us in a different direction and a lot of times it's unexpected, simple things. God chooses to use the simple, not the robust, not the big and the boisterous. No, God uses simple Simple things to get His work done. And we should be glad to be a part of it and look at those moments and praise God for those moments. The Christmas story, the greatest, most unlikely story that would ever be told, yet it shaped all of history and eternity.
May we remember that this week. Amen.